Two weeks ago, uh, we went all the way back to the very beginning and looked at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, uh, and we looked at how does the Christmas story, the Christmas narrative, actually fit into uh, the very, uh, very beginning. Uh, if you were here for that, you heard the message that uh, God wants to know you. God wants to have a relationship with you. God wants you to be part of his story. Uh, but the very first people, Adam and Eve, said, you know what, we've got a different story that we want to be part of. And they took the story into their own hands and decided, God, we're going to do our own thing and go our own way. Uh, and ever since that decision was made, uh, humanity has been feeling the effects of that decision. Uh, and so how does the Christmas story actually fit into uh, that early story, Genesis 1, 2, and 3? And I wrote it down like this, the Christmas story reminds us that Jesus came to undo what was done in the garden, namely to conquer sin, to conquer Satan, uh, and to bring us back into the story that God has for us. If you were here last week, uh, Zach did a, a phenomenal job uh, of walking through and really asked a great question of, does God care? Uh, because after they were kicked out of the garden, uh, humanity and everyone that came after Adam and Eve really started wrestling with the question, does God care? And the people of God began going through hard times and suffering. And the story specifically that Zach looked at was uh, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, were in bondage for 400 years. And I don't know if you can imagine being enslaved uh, and generation after generation after generation comes and goes, and it's the same old story. And you start to get the idea in your head, well, God's left us, God's abandoned, God doesn't care. And the Christmas story reminds us that Jesus came to serve as our perfect redeemer rescuer. God sent Moses to lead the people into freedom, but the Christmas story reminds us that God actually had a more perfect uh, rescuer, a more perfect redeemer who came to set us free. Now, we've been looking back, so we're trying to find and discover and learn how does the Christmas story fit into uh, the story of God and this morning, uh, I'm looking at, uh, I want to ask the question, uh, or start with this, is how did people uh, who were pre-Christmas, okay? So if you were to consider the people who lived pre-Christmas, how did they know God? How did they experience God? How did, how did they have a relationship with God? So pre-Christmas, meaning before Jesus came, uh, everyone who lived before Jesus, how did they have a relationship with God? How did that happen? How did that work? Now, I, this question obviously is presupposing a few things, that there was something wrong with the relationship, that they could not have a relationship. Um, and as again, I'm not going to go back uh, to the first week, but as soon as man decided to rebel against God, uh, they separated themselves from God. And all of us have been separated from God since then. So the question is, how did the, the people who lived pre-Christmas, how did they actually have a relationship, a walk with God? How did they relate to God, experience God? And I really want you to write this word down, because the answer to the question is just atonement. Atonement, okay? How did they have a relationship with God? Atonement. And really what that simply means is God made a way. God made it possible. He made a way for the people of God to have a relationship with God. There was nothing that the people could do to get to God uh, because God is holy, man is sinful, and there is a really big chasm between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And so if God didn't do something, then we would be left to try to figure out how, how, do, I get, 
how does an imperfect person get to a perfect being? And the atonement answers that question of how did they have a relationship with God uh, through atonement. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, that's okay. Uh, but how did atonement actually work out? And if you've read it all in books like Exodus, Leviticus, really the first few books of the Bible, you get very familiar very quickly with something called the sacrificial system. And the way the sacrificial system worked in the Old Testament uh, is God said, I want you to bring a perfect animal. I want you to bring, usually it was a lamb, uh, I want you to bring a perfect or a spotless animal once a year. And once a year, you're going to bring this animal on behalf of you and your family, you're going to bring this animal uh, to the temple. And you're going to present this animal to the priest, uh, and the priest is going to sacrifice He's going to kill this animal. He's going to shed the blood of this animal. Uh, and as soon as he would do that, after a time, uh, the priest would come back to the one who presented uh, the lamb or whatever animal that they brought, and the priest would declare, uh, this animal has been received as a sacrifice in your place, as a substitute for you. Your sins are forgiven. And so year after year after year after year, hundreds of years, thousands of years, this is what people did to be made right with God. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you. If you really think about the sacrificial system, it would be very easy to think, gosh, that sounds so barbaric, it sounds so nasty, it sounds so bloody, it just makes God seem like he's this bloodthirsty God. Why would God do it like this? If God made a way for you and I to have a relationship with him, and we're talking again about pre-Christmas, about the people who came before Jesus... Why would he do it like that? And uh, if you've been following along in your Advent devotional, uh, we still have uh, a couple dozen of these left. I'd encourage you to pick this up. Even if you haven't started it yet, we've still got a few days till Christmas, but I think you would enjoy it. And I wanted to share with you this quote from the Advent devotional, and it says this, it's a gruesome and bloody picture, isn't it? And that is exactly how God designed it to be. The point of this picture is to show us that our sin is so great and so evil that something or someone would have to die a horrifically bloody death to pay the price if we are to be forgiven. There's a whole nother section on atonement in the Advent devotional, but I just wanted to pull that one few sentences off. Uh, because when we look at the, uh, the atonement, the sacrificial system, to us it just seems so barbaric, so cruel. And I think God's design in that was for us to see just how horrific our sin is, just to see how, how much, how evil we had become and the price that would have to be paid to get us right again with God. So every time an animal was sacrificed, it reminded the ones who brought the animal, I'm sinful, sin has consequences, but God made a way. Every time they would present an animal, it would remind them, I am sinful, sin has consequences, but God made a way. And that's the amazing thing of the atonement is that God made a way for us to have a relationship with him. So if pre-Christmas people looked to the atonement, the sacrificial system to be made right with God, what about you? How do you and I, uh, we're post-Christmas people, uh, we get pre-Christmas, sacrificial system, atonement, how do you and I, post-Christmas people, how do you and I get right with God? And I really want you to think about that question. Whether you've been in church your whole life or maybe you've just been coming recently, how do you answer the question, you're a post-Christmas person, how do you get right with God? 
And I'd want you to catch this atonement through the sacrificial system the exact same way. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But the same way that pre-Christmas people were able to be made right with God, forgiven with God, have peace with God uh, through the sacrificial system, you and I, post-Christmas people, the way, the only way that we can be made right with God, have peace with God, be forgiven of God, uh, is through atonement, through the sacrificial system. And so uh, this Christmas story fits into the story of God uh, in that it changed everything. It changed how we can be made right with God. And the Christmas story is a reminder that God sent someone better to serve as our spotless and perfect lamb. So when we consider Christmas, what we should be considering is, gosh, God made a way. And he sent not an animal, he sent his only son to atone for us, to sacrifice for us. Uh, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming towards him, this is what John the Baptist said. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that an amazing way to, to address Jesus to the crowds? Hey, look, there's Jesus. He is the Lamb. And again, he's pulling very much on the Old Testament's understanding of, of sacrifice. People would bring a lamb or uh, another animal to be sacrificed. And John looks at Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, the book of Hebrews, if you've never re read through the book of Hebrews, uh, really the entire book is about Jesus and how Jesus is a better way, uh, how Jesus provides uh, atonement for us. And it says just a few verses in Hebrews 10. It says in chapter, chapter 10, verse 4, and then 19 and 20, For it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so, dear brothers and sisters, and what he means by that is they would have to come back year after year after year to keep atoning for their sins. And so, verse 19, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. When we're talking about the most holy place, what we're talking about is the presence of God. No one could go into uh, the most holy place. There was a priest who was appointed uh, at one time to go in each year, uh, but that was the most holy place. And what the Christmas narrative teaches us is Jesus has done that for us. Jesus is the atonement. Jesus is the one who is the sacrifice. So Christmas story reminds us that God made a way for us to be with him. Now, I, I'm going to guess that that might not be completely brand new to you, uh, but I hope that every time you hear that, uh, there's something in you that says, that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing that God made a way for me to be with him. And I think for some, and maybe a lot, uh, it doesn't seem amazing. And I wanted to challenge you with two things that if when you consider what God has done for you, what Jesus has done for you, that he made a way for you, uh, if this would remain amazing news to you, uh, there's two things I would ask you not only just to consider, but there's got to be a point where you just transfer from considering something to actually owning something. And the first one would be this. We're all sinners. Every single one of us is sinners. Scripture makes that clear. It says in Romans, for everyone sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, I don't know about you, I've never met someone who actually claimed to be perfect. 
and to be honest, this might seem like such a hard thing for people to understand, and they come to church and they're like, gosh, I'm always getting told I'm a sinner. Um, well, I, is anyone here, would anyone ever claim perfection? Would anyone ever claim that I've never done anything wrong, never thought anything wrong? So I don't know for you, but for me, as I'm actually getting older, and I'm only 41, but I can see a marked difference from where I am today and say when I was 31, uh, and this is the difference. Uh, the closer I'm getting in my relationship with God, uh, the more I'm beginning to understand just how sinful I actually am. Because I used to say, you know, I get it, I'm a sinner. Uh, but the more that I grow in my knowledge and understanding and awareness of who God is and what God is like, I, I have this conviction of I am so not like him. And so my hope for all of us is as you get older, you would not just brush off that you're a sinner, but you would actually embrace just how great your sin is in light of how great and holy God is. Um, now, for some, you'd be like, Michael, that's a depressing discouraging thought that would just lead me to great despair if I'm just always thinking of myself as a sinner. And I hope this would encourage you, but God loves sinners. God has a heart for sinners. God made a way for sinners to be with him. So the more that I understand just how sinful I actually am, I'm actually beginning to grow in the knowledge and awareness of just how much God loves me. Because when I remain impressed with the man who looks at me in the mirror every day, uh, I'm not as impressed with the love that God has for me. But as I'm growing in increasing understanding of who God is and what God is like, uh, I'm actually growing in depth and, and knowledge and understanding of how amazing God is and how amazing uh, his love is. Uh, I made the statement, uh, the great news, God loves sinners, Romans 3 I read verse 23, here's verse 24 and 25. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God pre presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Verse 24 again, with undeserved kindness, God declares that we are righteous. Isn't that amazing? And again, really the story of scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, is God loves sinners. And it's hard to understand that and know that until you embrace the gravity of our sin. This is a, a great quote uh, from a uh, pastor, author, Jack Miller. He said this, cheer up, you're a lot worse off than you think you are. But in Jesus, you're far more loved than you ever could have imagined. When I read that, I was like, wow, cheer up, Michael. Uh, you're actually a lot worse off than you think you are. And that's another way of that pastor uh, author saying, we don't really understand just how, how horrific our sin is in light of how holy God is. But he says, cheer up. Even though you don't understand it, even though you don't get it, I love how he said, but in Jesus, you're far more loved than you ever could have imagined. Isn't that awesome? That despite us being us, despite us being sinful and always wanting to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, in Jesus, he says, but I love you. And I really want us to grasp this morning, um, yes, we are sinners. 
So I think some of us would be like, okay, I am sinful, I get that. But then I, I think this thing that immediately begins to happen is, uh, but my sin's not that bad. I get that I'm a sinner, but I'm not like that bad of a sinner. And we immediately be, begin comparing ourselves to somebody else. Uh, and we're starting to think, you know, Michael, I, would, I admit, I am a sinner, but I'm not that bad of a sinner. And um, the reality is this, whoever you're comparing yourself to when you're thinking about that kind of thing, uh, well, you might be true. <laughs> you might, it might be a very true thing uh, that compared to this person, you're not that bad. But isn't it amazing how we always compare down, we never compare up? And so when I start thinking and, and trying to justify myself and like, I'm, not, I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad of a sinner, if I would just look and compare myself to Jesus, to, to God, I would quickly realize, and I, we would all quickly realize, well, I'm nothing like him. We're nothing like him. Uh, I shared this quote years ago. Some of you might remember it from our Roman series, but uh, it's amazing. Bishop Hanley uh, Mool was a, a pastor, a priest in the 19th century. He said this, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you are on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they are. Such an amazing picture how we often view ourselves as we're standing on the top of the mountain and then we look down to all the people in the valley below and be like, wow, that person is messed up. That person is so far gone. But in light of who God is, his holiness, we still can't touch where God is unless God does something for us. And this is the amazing message of the Christmas message. Uh, so I want us to celebrate the good news that God made a way that he provided atonement. He provided a way for us to know him. And I want to ask the question now, why? Why did he do it? Because I really, this should be something we struggle with. I, I want us to say, God, if you've done that, thank you. But I want us to grow in the depth of our gratitude for what God's done. So you wrestle with the question of why? Why did God do that? C.S. Lewis, um, I know I mention him a lot. If you've never read Mere Christianity, uh, buy it for yourself for Christmas, and uh, it's an amazing, amazing book. And he wrestled with the question of the atonement, and uh, he said this, uh, when he was talking about Christianity, uh, Christ has volunteered to bear a punishment instead of us. Now, in the face of it, if you've never read C.S. Lewis, one of the things that you'll be amazed by is how honest he is, how honest he is with his struggles, and here's one of them. Now, in the face of it, that is a very silly theory. If God was prepared to let us off, why on earth did he not do so? And what possible point could there be in punishing an innocent person instead? And he goes on to talk more about how he really wrestled with, this just seems ridiculous. If God wants to forgive someone, then just say, God, why can't God just say, hey, you're forgiven, all is well? What's the point of bringing his son, sacrificing his own son so that we could know him? Have you ever wrestled with that, the why question? Why did God do it? What was the point? If God has it in him just to decree forgiveness upon people, then why on earth doesn't he actually do that? And I want to answer this question in two ways. Number one is a debt needs to be paid. 
our sin, there is a debt. There is a debt that needs to be paid. In, in Romans, it says the wages of sin is death. There's a wage. There is a debt to be paid. C.S. Lewis then goes on to say, none, uh, again, I'm in the same quote where um, I started reading before, he goes on and says, none at all that I can see. If you're thinking of punishment in the police court sense, but on the other hand, if you think of a debt, there is plenty of point in a person who has some assets paying it on behalf of someone who has not. I'm going to read that one more time because I want you to get it. None at all that I can see if you're thinking of punishment in the police court sense. But on the other hand, if you think of a debt, there is plenty of point in a person who has some assets paying it on behalf of someone who has not. The asset that Jesus has that we do not is that Jesus was holy. I can't pay the debt for your sin. Do you know why? Because I'm just as much of a sinner as you. But Jesus, the asset that he has that we lack, that we don't have, is holiness. And so he is able to pay the debt for you, for me, making it uh, possible for us to have right relationship with God. Paul says this in uh, 1 Timothy he says, for there's only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. At just the right time, God stepped in and provided a mediator who would pay the debt that you and I could not pay. So a debt is paid. That's number one. Number two, and again, I'm asking the question, of why didn't God just say, I forgive you, and move on? Well, because a debt needed to be paid, and Jesus met that debt. The second reason why I would say this is justice is served. Now, let me ask this question. Can you imagine if someone who had committed a horrific crime, and you pick whatever horrific crime, there is, someone abused a child, an absolutely grotesque, horrific crime, and on the day that he stood before the judge, um, the judge stood up in his black robe and, and he looked at that individual and said, hey, you're forgiven. Go ahead. Go free. How many of us would say, oh, that's an amazing judge. What a great decision. How many of us would shake our fist and say, where's the justice in that? A crime had been committed. Forgiveness can be granted, but where is the penalty? Where is the punishment? That is deserved. Where is the justice in that? And so when we consider the atonement, what Christ did, he paid a debt we could not, and Christ is just, the justice of God is served in Christ. Uh, John Piper said it very well when he said this, God is not content to leave all people under his wrath, nor can he simply sweep, it, sweep sin under the rug of the universe. Therefore, his love and his justice conspire. Isn't that a great phrase? His love and his justice conspire to make a way for sinners to be saved and God's justice to be vindicated. The answer is the death of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing that God has done. He has declared forgiveness, but his forgiveness, his compassion, his love is coupled with justice. Therefore, no one could ever shake their fist at God and say, well, that's not fair. Where's the justice in that? Because he'd say, well, my son. My son, he paid your debt, and justice was served in the death of my son. 
So have you ever wrestled with the atonement of why he did it? I loved how C.S. Lewis came to the conclusion, it seems silly to me at first. It seems absurd. If God can forgive, why doesn't he? And then he walked through and he understood, well, a debt needed to be paid. Jesus did that. And the justice of God needed to be served. And Jesus met the justice of God. So if Christmas is to remind all of us that Jesus came to make a way for all of us to be with God, that he is our atonement. He is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, the one that makes us right with God. If the Christmas story reminds us of that amazing truth, then how should what Jesus did impact how you live? If, if all of this is true, that Jesus came as our Lamb to make us right with God, both now and forever, forever taking away sin, you would think that would have a pretty profound impact on how we live. And not just once a year when we think about Jesus coming, and not another time of the year when we think about Jesus going to a cross. Like, if this is true, you would think our lives would be very different. If God's made a way, and his name is Jesus, then what does life look like for you and I? And very quickly, I just share with you these very uh, three things of what, and this is not the exhaustive list, this is a very short list. And hopefully it will be helpful for you. Number one would be simply this. Say thank you a lot. Say thank you to God a lot. And I can't even put a a, a quantify exactly how much a lot is. But I know that you and I should be every day considering what God's done and saying to God, thank you. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you that you have made a way for me to be with you. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7, he's really just struggling with his sinfulness and God's holiness. And he says this in uh, verse 24 and 25. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And he just says, thank God. Thank God that the answer is Jesus. Thank God that it wasn't something else that I needed to do Thank God that it was just Jesus. So what does life look like, practically speaking? It it practically looks like you and I are saying thank you to God a lot. And not just before a meal, but all day, every day, walking around just thanking God for who he is and what God has done. I don't know if um, uh, you're familiar with the song, It Is Well With My Soul, Uh, but Uh, It's an amazing song. Uh, Horatio Spofford said this in one of the lyrics. My sin, oh the bliss, this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You just get the sense. He just walked around thanking God. Man, I know who I am. Praise God that he made a way. Praise God that he made a way. It's amazing when you get really good at thanking some, somebody for something. Anytime you say thank you to someone for something, you're not thinking about yourself, you're thinking about that person. And as I'm trying to grow in just living a life that's marked by gratitude towards God and learning how to say thank you to God just throughout the day, It's amazing. I don't know, uh, sometimes, you ever get sick of just thinking about yourself? You're just so consumed, you're just thinking about yourself. 
The way out of that is learning how to say thank you. Thank you to other people, but learning how to say thank you to God. And the more that I'm thanking God, the less I'm actually thinking about myself. My eyes are on him and giving him thanks. That would be a, hopefully a helpful, practical number one. Number two uh, is stop tinkering with your soul. If Jesus did what Jesus did and his atonement was enough to make us right with God, what does it look like for me and you, for all of us to live life in light of what Jesus has done? And um, it would be this, stop tinkering with your soul. A.W. Tozer, and I'm taking that phrase from him, said this, while we are looking at God, we do not see ourselves. And he calls it blessed riddance. The man who has struggled to purify himself and has had nothing but repeated failures will experience real relief when he stops tinkering with his soul and he looks away to the perfect one. The man who has struggled to purify himself and has had nothing but repeated failures will experience real relief when he stops tinkering with his soul and looks away to the perfect one. What the atonement does is it it allows us to put down our Christian to-do list. Our Christian to-do list, and let me ask you the question, what's on your to-do list? I got to become more holy. I got to become more pure. I got to stop being so angry and complaining all the time, and I got to reconcile this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this. And it's funny, you look at that, a list, a Christian to-do list, and you could go down, gosh, I want to be more forgiving, more gracious, more kind, more disciplined, more devout. I want to stop worrying. I want to stop getting so angry. I want to stop complaining. And it seems like such a phenomenal list. And the thought behind is, if I just keep working, and if I just keep doing, if I keep performing, then that's what's going to grow me closer to God, what I'm doing my actions, my performance, not only is it going to get me closer to God, but clearly God's going to look at me and be pretty impressed with what he sees, this hardworking Christian to-do list who keeps tinkering with his soul. And I love how A.W. Tozer just said it. Get your eyes off yourself, stop messing around with you, and just keep your eyes fixed on the perfect one. The way that's been helpful for me over the years to think about it is I'm either going to live my life trying to prove Jesus wrong when he said it's finished, or I'm actually going to live my life showing the world what he meant when he said it's finished. That I'm not trying to outperform you, I'm not trying to outperform somebody else. When Jesus said it's finished, I can stop tinkering with, with my soul, keep my eyes on him, and just let Jesus do what Jesus wants to do with me. Tully and Chavinjan just released a great uh, book, and uh, this is going to seem like a long quote, but I, I put it in here because I hope it will encourage you. While I am far more incapable than I may have initially thought, God is infinitely more capable than I ever hoped. His approval and his commitment to me does not ride on my transformation, but on Jesus' substitution. Jesus is infallibly devoted to us in spite of our inconsistent devotion to him. The gospel is not a command to hang on to Jesus. It's a promise that no matter how weak your faith and how unsuccessful your efforts may be, God is always holding on to you. So despite a poor performance, the gospel promises that Jesus has you. And it's not he has you because you're trying really hard. It's because he did it. He finished 
Tullian goes on to say this, if you're a Christian, here's the good news. Who you really are has nothing to do with you. Just sit with that for a second. The good news of the gospel, who you really are has nothing to do with you. You ever had that thought of when we think of who I am, we start immediately thinking to what I do, what I've done, what's been done to me. But the gospel says who you really are has nothing to do with you, how much you can accomplish, uh, who you can become, your behavior, good or bad, your strengths, your weaknesses, your sword past, your family background, your education, your looks, and so on. Your identity is firmly anchored in Christ's accomplishment, not yours. His strength, not yours. His performance, not yours. His victory, not yours. Your identity is steadfastly established in his substitution, not in your sin. So number two is stop tinkering with your soul. That's not a call to laziness. That's a call to steadfastness, steadfastness of keeping your eyes on the perfecter of your soul. So number one, say thank you a lot. Number two, stop tinkering with your soul. And I couldn't think of how else to say this, but number three is this. Be ridiculously generous. And again, if we're answering the question of how do I live my life, not just at Christmas and Easter, how do I live my life in light of atonement and what Jesus has done for me? I couldn't honestly think of a better way to say it except to say, be ridiculously generous. If God has been as generous as God has been to make a way for me to know him possible, how could I not live a life that mimicked, that imitated the generosity of God? Got to throw in Spurgeon, because I haven't quoted him yet. He says this, it is our duty and our privilege, I want you to hear this, to exhaust our lives for Jesus. It is our duty and it is our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be consumed. Now that is a quote that doesn't sit well with this generation. The generation that says, you know what, I need boundaries, I need to protect what's mine, what's in here, and I'll push myself and I'll work, but I'm going to have boundaries. But what I see in the atonement is there were no boundaries. God did not hold back. He sent his son so that you and I would know him. How could I not live my life in light of the atonement with ridiculous generosity? How could I ever look at someone and say, I can't forgive you for that. You criticized me. Are you serious? I'm not going to let that go. You, you hurt my feelings. I can't forgive you for that. How could I ever look at all that I have, and I have a lot, and say, you, I, I, it's yours? How could I ever live my life with my hands in my pockets or my hands closed, not being willing to give what someone else might need? How, how could I ever possibly, in light of the atonement, not live a ridiculously generous life? How could I not take a, a gift that God's given me and share it with anyone and everyone at all times? How could I not do that in light of the atonement? Outside of Jesus, the individual in the New Testament that I see lived an incredibly unbalanced lifestyle, and we would probably put him in psychiatric care, would be the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul gets to the end of his life. And if you're ever wondering, Michael, do you have a verse that kind of drives you? I'm about to read it. 
And this is the Apostle Paul at the very end. And he says, but you, and he's talking now about what Jesus has done, but you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. See, I don't want to get to the end of my life and say, I still had some in the tank. And the beauty of people who are so afraid to live an unbalanced lifestyle because you need your boundaries is you're afraid to do that because you're afraid that God's not going to keep pouring in as you pour out. And I promise you, you can never outpour God, ever. Be ridiculously generous. Pour out your life. How could we not in light of what God's done? And we don't do that to pay him back. We do that in light of he's shown us the way. So say thank you. Stop tinkering with your soul. And just when Jesus said it's finished, it's finished. Keep your eyes fixed on him, not fixed on what you think you need to do, but keep your eyes fixed on him. And then lastly, be ridiculously generous. Tully and Chavinjan, uh, in a different book, he said this about generosity. Because Jesus has done everything for me, I can do everything for you without needing you to do anything for me. Isn't that awesome? Because we often give people in hopes that we're going to get something back from them that we'll feel good about ourselves, or that we might get rewarded in return. But I can be ridiculously generous to all people all the time. Why? Because Jesus has done everything for me. Therefore, I can do everything for you without needing you to do anything for me.